to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician, a CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, bringing you the news to know for the week of August the 3rd. It has been hot and humid here on the East Coast. Hope you all are tolerating wearing your masks in this heat if you're if you're in this region and otherwise hope you're staying safe going to cover roughly six stories today the first one i actually picked up on from my linkedin news feed dr todd burston who is from oshner he's the cmio there and we're connected and he liked or actually posted an article about something that was in becker's but becker's actually picked it up from jamia it had to do with problem lists. And Todd is probably one of the experts in problem lists, if, if you want my opinion on it, and has had great success at his institution at getting people to utilize the problem list. So let's talk about this article in Jamia. The title, Characterizing Outpatient Problem List Completeness and Duplications in the Electronic Health Record, and published in their July, July issue here. So couple of paragraphs uh, from the article. Problem lists are essential to clinician workflows because they highlight critical problems that otherwise might be forgotten and make it easier for multiple providers to coordinate the management of each of those problems. Similarly, problem lists make it easier for clinicians who are taking care of new patients to familiarize themselves with the patient's critical problems quickly and efficiently. Just read that just for those of you who are not problem list believers. I am i'm not always in love with problem oriented charting because it's a little bit less efficient than just picking up the dragon microphone but it does keep me organized so i do it but uh, i'm a believer in problem lists. i'll leave it at that regardless of whether you use it for problem oriented charting or not so article goes on incomplete problem list and gender distrust in the overall reliability of problem lists this can lead to a, quote, tragedy of the commons, end quote, a situation in which providers react to incomplete problem lists by refusing to use or update them, which only exacerbates the problem. I'm sure CMIOs, we, we all experience this, and it's rather difficult to overcome once everyone starts hating the problem list. The uh, clinical utility of problem lists often languishes over time as they remain incomplete and accumulate duplicates. Previous studies of problem list utilization have fo typically focused on problem list completeness. One study found that problem list completeness for patients with diabetes ranged from as little as 60% up to 99.4%. Whoever's got that 99.4%, if you're in that system, speak up as to how you got that. Uh, let's see. Problem list duplications are an equally important issue. Duplications compromise the fundamental purpose of problem lists, which is to provide a comprehensive yet palatable medical overview of a patient. So how did they do it? They did a retrospective analysis of EHR data from Partners Healthcare, and that is an epic shop. And I'm not going to go into tons of details here. There's a couple more paragraphs I want to read from their discussion section. So rates of completeness were relatively stable in the 70 to 90% range across all diseases. So they took that, they didn't take every disease in the world. They looked at a handful of chronic illnesses 
Hypertension was one, Crohn's disease was another, and asthma was one. You get the point. They were looking to see if those diseases were on the problem list at all. Rates of duplication were generally greater than rates of incompleteness, averaging 16% and 14.6% across the diseases, respectively, suggesting that the burden of duplications was slightly higher than that of incompleteness in these populations. Providers consistently provide 65 to 75% of patients with one and only one problem list entry, regardless of the disease. However, for some diseases, more than others, providers have a variable tendency to create duplications, likely because of disease-specific differences in the number of problem list encodable attributes, such as complications and disease states. So I may very well have on my problem list Crohn's disease without complications. Then the patient develops an abscess or a rectal bleed. I might add another problem list entry because it wouldn't make sense to put down abscess or fistula under Crohn's disease without complications. So they consider that a duplicate. And yes, it is. But in my mind, that's kind of an appropriate duplicate, at least for some period of time. At some point in time, the abscess or fistula closes. And then I might go back to saying it's without complications. And I might put in the the overview section, uh, the, the running commentary about that particular disease, uh, which is continued over time, I might put that abscess or fistula in there and then get rid of the, the complication listing. So one of the problems with the study is that it's not universally recognized what to do around, should you get rid of the without complication Crohn's disease while you're working with the other one, with the, the one with the complication in it? I guess that's one way of dealing with it. So they also looked at the effective disease severity. There was a more consistent relationship between disease severity and completeness and duplications with only two diseases failing to demonstrate a relationship. The positive correlation between duplications and disease severity may be the result of more severe disease states leading to more systemic complications that can be separately documented in the problem list, which is what we were just stating. I kind of agree with the authors there. And I won't go, they go into more details around things, but I think you get the point. Why do I bring this article up? Number one, to help you understand the baseline for where problem lists stand. 65, 75%, I feel, is a reasonable number for the completeness of a medical record. What I personally find is the duplications. And I have the problem on the discharge. The hospitalists do problem-oriented charting. So they're using the problem list to create the assessment and plan. And then they need that. That's building their note. And so once they finish their note, they don't go back into the problem list and then get rid of all those things. So the patient arrives in an ambulatory setting and they've got an extra 15 to 20 problems, sepsis and uh, DVTs and things that they had in the hospital but probably no longer are dealing with, and yet it'll stay on the ambulatory chart forever. Yes, they're supposed to be seen for post-discharge follow-up within 7 to 14 days, and they might. They might not do it inside our system, and not everybody in the world is on our EHR. And of course, EHRs don't talk to each other. 
So the problem list stayed junky. And the next time that patient goes to the hospital, all that stuff's going to stay on there. And the admitting hospitalist is not terribly motivated to clean out the old problem list items. So if you've got, if you've mastered this, if you are as good as Todd and you have been able to tie some compensation metrics to the, getting the problem list right, good for you. I hate to say it, that may be the only way of getting this to work. If you have other ideas, I am all ears. That's a tough one to, uh, to crack. Next article, House Votes to Overturn Unique Patient Identifier Ban. This one written by Mallory Hackett, and it's July 31st. The House of Representatives today approved the bipartisan Foster-Kelly Amendment, which was to have this unique patient identifier, or excuse me, to allow work to proceed. Previously, there was a law that said HHS may not work on a unique patient identifier, and that was presumably for patient privacy concerns, and it's been in place decades. And so now the House has approved it, it still has to go through the Senate. Uh, patient ID Now is a coalition of healthcare organizations, that does include HIMSS, that advocates for better patient identification methods through legislation and regulations. The group cites a number of cases of wrongful identification involving situations for duplicated patient records, false identification, and mislabeled lab results. Last year, the same amendment made it through the House but did not end up making it all the way into law. The ACLU last year, I remember, wrote letters saying, hey, this is bad for privacy and kind of torpedoed this. The thinking this year is, my understanding, is that COVID is creating interoperability challenges, actually just bringing them to the surface. They've always been there. But our difficulties in understanding who's been tested, where they've been tested, what they've been diagnosed with across neighboring health systems is challenged. And part of that problem is with patient matching. And I have seen this in our own health system where we're trying to determine a patient's COVID status and it mismatched. There, there were two identities of a patient in the system when we were looking at the state HIE, that's where the duplicate was. And we had a difficult time determining if this patient did or did not have COVID testing depending upon which record you were looking at. So I get the, the scope of the problem and it's very difficult to solve. And I understand the patient privacy concern to some degree, but we already have a lot of patient identifiers. They're just failing us. We have name, date of birth, sex, telephone numbers, zip codes, but we need this unique patient identifier to absolutely solve the patient matching problem. We should not have duplicate records out there and mismatch patients and the risk of medical data going into the wrong chart because of a, a misidentification. So keep your eyes on this one. It may move through the Senate. Next, Healthcare IT News, Kat Jerich, uh, July 31st, clinician burnout correlates with volume of EHR patient call messages. For those of you in primary care, you're going, no, duh. For those of you who are in orthopedic surgery, you're probably going, eh, we don't get any messages. That's probably true. All right, so this study, which is also published in JAMIA, found that clinicians with high volumes of patient call messages had almost four times the odds of burnout compared to those with the fewest. 
They also found the EHR-based efficiency tools, except for the ability to copy and paste, were not associated with decreased odds of burnout. The team found that the number of patient call messages per week uh, were significant and included things like patient requests and questions, but also refill requests that did not come through the interface, patient care forms, and other tasks. When it came to efficiency measures, such as pre-charting of notes, use of chart search function, number of smart phrases, and percent of orders placed through preference lists or smart sets, none were associated with burnout. Although top users of copy and paste were significantly less likely to report it. Let's hold there for a second. How interesting is that? Because most CMIOs hate copy and paste. I happen to like it from an efficiency standpoint, as long as it's done correctly. In other words, don't copy the vitals from the last visit. Make sure you're updating the information. Make sure you're changing things because no patient is exactly the same as the last time you saw them. And if they are, even that's worth commenting that the disease is stable and you're excited to see that and moving to see them again soon. So copy and paste is evidently a very valuable tool. Interesting that the other tools were not valuable in preventing burnout. Doesn't mean it didn't improve efficiency. And I think what this article tells me, which I already knew, is that burnout's a complicated, uh, it's a complicated disease, I guess. And it's not easy to say there's one thing that causes it. And we all know as CMIOs, the EMR is not the cause of burnout. Regulatory pressures probably are, payment models are, the need to see more and more patients and the pressure from being employed perhaps is playing a role. And adding the EMR on top of all that and having to click different boxes for EMRs that are not designed well, absolutely, it adds a layer of frustration on top of it, but it's probably not the sole source. So I don't want you to walk away from this article saying, eh, we don't need to do pre-charting or chart search, smart phrases. You do. We absolutely do. You just got to keep in mind that that's not going to be the panacea. Let's see. They also go on to say that transcription or voice recognition technology uh, was not also not associated with lower burnout prevalence. The authors suggest the call volume measure might be correlated with increased burnout because virtually all of the tasks are uncompensated. They also suggest the condition could be related to lack of control over workload, an excessive amount of at-home EHR time, and a high proportion of work not requiring physician-level skills. So when you're going out there and doing optimization, that's a key point right there. Optimization is not optimizing the provider as the only piece of optimization. You have to optimize the care team. And that means having the medical assistants not push everything into the provider's in-basket. And it means the doctor has to not be a control freak and insist that every message gets pushed into their in-basket. They have to trust their team. If they don't, then we have to work on that trust. That's the key pieces of healthcare teams working effectively together. Yes, the doctor's at the top of the team, but they need to be able to delegate effectively to be an effective physician, particularly in primary care where you're managing huge populations of patients and you can't possibly do it all yourself. 
The part about it being uncompensated is true and just speaks to the evils of the fee-for-service model that we all still mostly live in. Under value-based care, not so much a problem. So, next article comes out of Becker's and it's written by Laura Dryad and Jackie Drees on Friday, July 31st. And it's what 11 hospital IT execs want to say to HHS secretary, that's Health and Human Services. So I'm not gonna read you all 11, but I think you'll quickly get the point here. A lot of this has to do with the COVID reporting and what HHS has kind of done here. So first one is Richard Temple, the Vice President and CIO of Deborah Hart and Lung Center in New Jersey. I would ask them to fully recognize the extra workload and the rapidly evolving regulations are placing on already stressed caregivers. And with that in mind, to keep changes to reporting requirements to a bare minimum, just to those that have shown themselves to be clinically relevant. I think we can give a round of applause to that one. Next, Jason Fisher, CIO of PIH Health in California. Less shooting from the hip and more thoughtful analysis of what was needed rather than the variety of changes along the way. While I understand that needs do shift, the daily adjustments and allowing individual counties to identify data needs has been problematic for accurate reporting. Yes. Next one is Aaron Young, CIO of Summit Healthcare in Arizona. Specifically define what is to be reported and don't leave room for interpretation. I'm going to come back to that point when we talk about the, the new COVID reporting requirements and how some of those could be interpreted in unusual ways. Next, Dean Thomas, CIO, Memorial Hospital at Gulfport, Mississippi. First, I think all results mandated for EMR vendors and labs, digital and standardized. Second, do whatever it takes to get rapid in-house tests in the hands of healthcare providers. While that's being put in place, do whatever it takes to reduce turnaround times to 24 hours or less with standardized digital results. I mean, yes, yes, and yes. Now, someone waved their magic wand to make that happen. But yes, the biggest problem that we're having right now in our health system is lack of tests. And I don't know if that is something you're worried about, but most health systems are still struggling with this due to lack of reagents. There are some who are making their own that are probably doing just fine. So let's jump to the next article. Also out of Becker's, Jackie Drees, CDC director says, we weren't involved in HHS decision to change COVID-19 reporting protocol for hospitals, Friday the 31st. And HHS altered its reporting guidance for hospitals on July 10th, directing hospitals to send data through the state or state contractor, which then reports data directly to HHS. Previously, it went on a daily basis to the CDC through its data system, National Health Safety Network, which, is, which goes to the states. So what is the CDC saying here? If you look on the CDC website, how to report COVID-19 laboratory data. It's clear that everyone has to report if you are testing COVID for diagnostic purposes. I don't think you have to do it for screening. Don't hold me to that. But what to report? Yeah, you're reporting your, the test you ordered using loin codes and some patient background information, age, race, 
sex, ethnicity, zip codes. And now there's this new piece that came along, which relates to the CARES Act. And so the CARES Act gave guidance re that require all clinical laboratories and testing providers that perform diagnostic testing under CLIA to report the results of any test that is intended to detect SARS-CoV-2 or to diagnose a possible case of COVID-19 that could be viral or antibody. And it's not just positive tests. And those have to be reported to local and state health departments. So uh, laboratories that conduct surveillance testing for SARS-CoV-2 must not report the results as diagnostic results to state or local public health departments. I think you still have to report. It's just not make sure you're separating between surveillance and diagnosis. So there's uh, these questions that are called ask on order entry questions. And do you have to do these is on the CDC website. It says, yes, the information is critical for state and public uh, health officials to plan and execute COVID-19 control and mitigation efforts. These elements should be collected and conformant with the HL7 version 2.5.1 lab order interface implementation guide. So what are these lovely questions? Number one, is this the patient's first test? Yes, no, or unknown. Actually, all of them are going to be yes, no, and unknown. So I'm not going to say that each time. Uh, is, are they employed in healthcare? Now, what does that mean? Employed in healthcare. So, hmm, they work the cash register in the hospital cafeteria. Are you employed in healthcare? If you work in finance, are you employed in healthcare? If you're the respiratory therapist that does intubations uh, at night in your hospital, are you employed in healthcare? That's probably an easy one, yes. I don't know about the others. Are you symptomatic as defined by the CDC? And if yes, then the date of onset and then hospitalized. Well, what about observation patients there? Are observation patients hospitalized? They're in our beds, but they're not inpatient. And they don't count for many things unless you're an inpatient. Stupid rules. Next, ICU, yes, no, unknown. That should be pretty clear cut, but there's lots of different ICUs out there. So you get run over by a truck, you're in the trauma ICU, and you happen to be COVID-19 positive. Yeah, I guess you're in an ICU, so sure. And then a resident in a congregated care setting, which is nursing homes, residential care facilities, psychiatric treatment facilities, group homes, um, board and care homes, homeless shelter, foster care, or other settings. You gotta love the other settings terminology. That's really not specific. I assume they mean prisons and perhaps um, at camp where where kids could be living in uh, a bunk, a bunkhouse where you could have 15, 20 kids in there. So I get it that they didn't have the ability to account for every single situation, but that's a pretty squishy thing to try to put into an electronic health record where we want to automate this stuff as CMIOs. Where am I supposed to pull that information from? The other settings. Where do I pull the employed in healthcare fields from? And then finally, they ask if the patient's pregnant. That one, I know where to pull it from. So, that, so I'm good there. Anyway, this had to be in place by August 1st. And if you're now learning about this, you're behind the curve. The question is, 
are you going to be able to report it? And in the state of Maryland, I can tell you the answer is no, because the State Department of Health our facility and said, we can't catch, so don't pitch it over the fence. Hmm, that's interesting. So our current initiative is on hold. Check with your State Department of Health and see if they are capable of getting the data. I wish you luck with this one. Providers are gonna hate it. It is collected at order entry, so it's not something the lab's gonna be collecting, except what are you gonna do when patients show up to your lab with a paper script? from an outside office that just orders the COVID testing. And you're gonna turn that patient away? Or is your lab technician gonna start asking, do you have symptoms as defined by the CDC? That's gonna be a difficult one, especially because many of these lab slips are entered by the registration people. They're just simply transcribed. And the registration people are gonna be asking clinical questions? Probably not. So challenging situation. Next, I am not going to get through all the stories I thought it was today. I will do, well, let's see if we can do one more. Amazon's five latest health-related job openings. Katie Adams reported this Friday, July 31st. I'll just read you a couple of them, but uh, they're looking for a senior manager of nonprofit healthcare to lead sales strategy for Amazon's nonprofit healthcare segment. Interesting. Technical program manager for health informatics will manage the electronic health record systems, data collection, analysis, design, configuration, integration, testing, and maintenance. They're making their own EHR, it sounds like. Head of sales uh, for the public sector healthcare, which is to engage with C-suite customers across public health uh, organizations. Senior vendor manager Professional healthcare and scientific will help manage strategic suppliers to increase profitability and performance, partnering with Amazon's business team to drive the development of healthcare and education segments. I have no idea what that position does, even after reading it. Senior product manager technical will lead strategy and vision for a new project team building a new healthcare product, probably intentionally vague. What's my point? Why am I reading you this story? Amazon's moving into healthcare. We all kind of knew that. We know that they've been dipping their toe in. They seem to be hiring. You don't build your own EHR if you're dipping your toe into healthcare. So they're making some investments here. Look for Amazon coming our way. And let's wrap it up there. Got some really interesting people coming up on tap, including Craig Joseph Dr. Craig Joseph from, he's now with Nordic Consulting and an incredibly funny guy. If you're not following his blog, he is so sarcastic. So I'm looking forward to getting him on the show. Got uh, CIO, Dr. Uh, CIO David Lair coming on this week as well. And other great uh, talent coming on to educate us CMIOs. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from or just to connect, and I look forward to bringing you our next episode.